So this week is actually going to be the last week in our series on Thanksgiving. Next week, we're going to begin talking about Advent and Jesus' coming to this earth and what that means uh, to us and to the world. But I'm going to start off this sermon right away by giving you the main idea of this message, which is godly gratitude ought to pervade local church life from interpersonal relationships to teaching to corporate singing. Now, the point of this sermon isn't so much to emphasize our individual responsibility and privilege for gratitude. Although that is a part of it, I am um, going further than that to talk about the local church's privilege and responsibility to express gratitude. If I could say it this way, we say at Ventura Baptist Church that we are a people pursuing Jesus together. And maybe I could add this. We are to be a people pursuing Jesus together with gratitude. Now that might sound a little bit odd to you. Communal thanksgiving. But in the sermon last week that Mark Buell preached, he briefly mentioned Romans 1.21, which talks about the world around us and how all people are born in this world suppressing the truth about God and embracing a lie. Essentially him saying, we human beings, we elevate all sorts of created things to the level of God in terms of how we treat them. It might be money, it might be affirmation, it might be power, it could be sex. We elevate those things. Those are the things that we follow and live for. But Paul, in breaking it all down to show the sinfulness of the human race, in Romans 1 verse 21, he says, they didn't give thanks. That's the description of the sinful world. And then I have some questions as I think about that. Is Paul saying that if people are genuinely thankful, then those people are clearly giving evidence that they're reconciled with God? And if that's the case, because that's what it seems like what Paul is suggesting, if that's the case, then I have another question. Is nobody who is an unbeliever grateful? Like, so let me say it in a different way. Um, there's a lot of books today on giving thanks. A lot of uh, maybe positive thinking books that talk about the power of giving thanks and the power of giving thanks on your mind and on your emotions. And so just be a thankful person and you, you'll have a better you'll have a better experience in this life. You'll at least be emotionally more stable. I have friends who are not Christians, and they'll say things like, I'm so thankful for, and I'm so thankful for this. So then I think, is Paul really saying that everyone born in this world really isn't thankful? Or maybe Paul's just saying in the first century, People weren't thankful in the first century, but now we have more gratitude today. You think that's what Paul's saying? No. So what we need to do at this point is we need to know what does thanksgiving actually mean? What is godly thanksgiving, which is true thanksgiving? In the Greek, the word refers to gratitudes for, or gratitude for benefits and blessings. And from a biblical perspective, there's more to this word. Again, to talk about Mark's sermon from last week, he emphasized the psalms that were around Psalm 106 
And some of the things that those psalms mentioned, in Psalm 105, thanking God because of his sovereign power, his providence, his, his working in every single thing. And so they thank God for who he is and what he does, no matter what it is. In Psalm 107, it's thanking and praising God that he's a God who rescues and saves people. And what's really interesting is that this past week in my study, I discovered that in every, or almost every, but I think it's every, occurrence of the word gratitude in the Bible either expresses gratitude for God's sovereign power or his saving purpose. And whenever gratitude is expressed, it's expressed to God. Okay, so let's just go back to the world, the people who don't trust in Jesus. And I, I have friends, you know, that'll say something like, oh, I'm so thankful for my children, or I'm so thankful that I got this job. And in my mind, I think to myself, thankful to who? Who are you thankful to? And why are you thankful for it? And now that's the question that I, I would want to ask my friends who aren't Christians, but I think those are good questions to ask ourselves because we have been saved by God. And so we should not want to go back to a worldly gratitude. We should want to know what godly gratitude is, right? So that we can experience the culmination of joy in God. We should want this godly gratitude. So to whom are you thankful? Why are you thankful? thankful. I'm going to simplify this with one example. How many of you have ever watched Little House on the Prairie? Raise your hand. Little House on the Prairie. Okay, if you've watched any of Little House on the Prairie, then you know of Nellie Olson. Nellie. Now, she seemed to be a person who had everything, right? Anything that she could want. And then there were certain times where she expressed that she didn't have something that she did want. Maybe she wanted to win the certain race or the games in the town, or, or she wanted a certain horse, or she wanted this certain, whatever it is. She wants it, she wants it, she wants it. And there were times maybe even where she won this or she received this, and she might have said thank you to her parents for those things. But do you actually think that Nellie was a thankful person? I mean, no. Everybody watching the show knows Nellie is self-focused. If she said thank you to her parents, it wasn't because, oh, you are such wonderful people, and I think you are amazing. It's simply because she thinks she's so amazing, and she wants that thing to spend it on herself. See, that's the point of Paul in Romans chapter 1, that the human race loves creation more than God. And so they might say thank you, but they say thank you just because they want it for themselves. And why are they thankful for the thing? Because they like it for them. So I might even have a friend who says, I'm even thankful for the challenges in my life because it makes me a better person. That's their answer. Whereas the Bible says all of God's kindnesses, if you go to Romans chapter 2, God's kindness is meant to lead you to what? Repentance, which means to be drawn closer to God to turn to him. Worldly gratitude then really isn't gratitude because it doesn't focus on the gift giver. It focuses on the gifts, on the creation. And God has so much more for his people. Now, you could say, okay, where are you going with this? 
The sermon isn't even from Romans. What are you doing? Well, I'm trying to emphasize this idea of communal gratitude here and where you might also say, okay, where in the Bible does it show this? It does show it in Colossians 3, but I also want you to see the big picture even from the book of Romans. In Romans chapter 1, when Paul talks about the world, the community of this world, he says, he uses a word to describe them, and the word is reprobate. Or it can also be translated undiscerning. And then when Paul works through the book of Romans, and he talks about how you can be forgiven of your sins solely on the basis of Jesus Christ, and if you would trust in Jesus, you could have reconciliation with God. Then Paul gets to Romans chapter 12, and right at the beginning of Romans chapter 12, he talks about a new group of people, people who have been set free by Jesus. And do you know what he says of those people? He says that you can discern the will of God. That's the exact opposite word from chapter 1. You have the community of the world that is undiscerning, and you have the community of Jesus who is discerning. And now we know what to do. And Paul goes on to talk to them, and he says, you should be a rejoicing people. Rejoice! Because of all that God has done for you. That's in contrast to the world. The world is ungrateful. But the community of God is rejoicing, and that's a light to the world. Now, I think Paul gets very concentrated in Colossians 3 and emphasizes this need of the community of believers, the local church, to exhibit this to one another and to the world around them. And so the big idea, again, of this sermon is that godly gratitude ought to pervade local church life from interpersonal relationships to teaching to corporate singing. And we're going to take the first part of this statement. Godly gratitude ought to pervade local church life. So let's read these verses. Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another. And if one has complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so also you must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Is there a way to switch? That could get annoying, right? All right. So we'll just wait a second. And when it's wrong, it's their fault. Um, and so I'm very thankful for that. Is this picking up? Can you hear me? Hopefully. Does it get it now? Yeah? Okay. All right, so... 
godly gratitude ought to pervade the local church life. Now, you look at these verses, and you might be tempted to say, why aren't we talking about the individual here? It sure sounds like individual commands. But let me ask you a question. If you go down south, south in this country, okay, and somebody says to you, you better behave, or if they say, y'all better behave, what does the y'all imply? There's, there's more than one, right? And in the Greek here, that's exactly what Paul is doing. He's using the plural form of you. He's talking to the entire church. Y'all are to live this way. You all together are representing the Lord Jesus Christ. And so that's why we're talking communally here, that gratitude should pervade the church. This should pervade the church in Colossae. This should be the reality of Ventura Baptist Church that we recognize this is a responsibility and a privilege of us who are members of one another. But why do we live this way? What I did here is I just took verses 12 through 17 and pulled it out of its context. But we can't, we can't forget the context. Verse 12 starts with, put on then. Then can also be understood as therefore. So we have to know what came before this. Why is he saying put on these things? Because what Paul said previously is that we have put on a new self. If you have trusted in Jesus, there is a new reality over you. And because there's a new reality, you are being renewed daily in the image of our God. That's amazing. We're being restored. Whereas Adam and Eve lost, lost all that glory. Now in Christ, we receive more and we grow in this. And then Paul also says, before these verses, that within the church of God, there's no division based on ethnicity, man-made laws, slavery, or freedom. Christ, then, has become our life. Jesus is the life of every single one of us. Now, what Paul is doing here is he's essentially expounding on verses 1 through 3 of this chapter. And I want to read to you verses 1 through, actually 1 through 4. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Now, I, have, I actually have a lot of favorite verses in the Bible and verse 4 makes it in that list of favorites. Because of the phrase, Christ, who is your life? Jesus is my life. Is that true of you? Is Jesus your life? What or who do you live for? What excites you? What angers you? What compels you to wake up in the morning when the bottom falls out and trials hit your life? Who do you turn to? Who is your life? If you have trusted in Jesus, Paul actually says, Jesus is your life. Even whether you treat him like that or not, he is your life. But we are to live in line with that reality. So Paul urges us, don't, don't set your mind on things of this earth. Set your mind on things above where Christ is seated. Set your mind. 
So if I can word it this way, don't set your mind on the stock market. Don't set your mind on social media. Don't set your mind on people's opinions of you. Don't set your mind on climbing higher in the ladder of success. Don't set your mind on video games. Don't set your mind on food. Don't set your mind on family. Don't set your mind even on any of the good gifts of God. Set your mind on Christ. Now, you could have heard me say that. You go, whoa, whoa, whoa. Don't set my mind on my family. Don't set my mind on good gifts of God. Why? They're good gifts. Well, it's because what the idea of set means. This morning, I was in my office, and I looked at my watch here, and I looked at the time on my phone. Now, my phone is set to always be the correct time. I mean, it should be. And I looked at my watch, and it was off by a minute. And that's rather annoying to me. And so I take my watch, and I wait until it's at the precise second, and I set it. I have other watches that they'll, they'll, they'll go off in seconds over, you know, a day or two or three. And so I, I have to consistently move those times back to the correct time. Otherwise, I might be off by five minutes. And, you know, growing up, my dad always said, some people say better late than never, and I say better never late. And so I know I got to set, right? I have some watches that they'll just die after a few days. And so if I just live off of the time when I pick up that watch, I'm not living in light of reality. And that's the idea of what Paul is getting at here. Set your mind on Christ because Jesus is reality. Jesus is your life. You set your mind on him and he sets everything else for you. Everything is set on the basis of Jesus Christ. So focus on and love Jesus, live in line with who you are in him. I know even as I say this, I don't want to presume that everyone who's listening has trusted in Jesus and turned from their sins. But I just want to say to you that if you haven't trusted in the Lord, I urge you, the Bible says, turn to Jesus. Call on God for forgiveness of your sins on the basis of Jesus alone and not of you, and God will forgive you. For those of you who have trusted in Christ, Paul moves on now into verse 12. It says, on the basis of these realities that Jesus is your life, put on then. And then he says, we're to be united with each other. He gives commands how we are to behave towards each other in the church family. Because it's not just I who am united with Jesus. Here in Ventura, you're united with Jesus, which means if you're united with Jesus and I'm united with Jesus, then we're united with Jesus. And because we're united with Jesus and Jesus has given so much love and grace towards me, then we ought to want to express that type of communion with each other. Does that make, make sense what Paul is saying? This is in direct contrast to the world. You know, even this past week, I had two of my older sons say to me, I hate cancel culture. You know, cancel culture where basically it's like, oh, you believe that? Then I can't be your friend. Oh, you believe that? Then I'm, I'm over here. Oh, you believe? No. We basically reject people because they believe something different than us. And Paul says, if you have trusted in Jesus 
then that's our unity and we don't cancel each other. I don't say, oh, you believe that? Oh, man, I'm out. Instead, what Paul says to us is, bear with one another. Endure with one another. You see that the idea of long-suffering is in here? That's the word patient in the text. Be patient, suffer long with one another. And you could say, but they're wrong. Praise God. He doesn't look at you and say, but you're wrong. I cancel you. He still loves you, right? Because you're in Christ. Now, that doesn't mean that those wrong things should just, oh, who cares what you believe? We should grow, and we should grow in godliness. But the first thing within the church is this recognition. We're not like the world. God has saved us, and he is changing us. And so, therefore, we love and bear with one another. Why do we do this? Well, look at the terms Paul uses for us. I mean, this is just amazing. You're chosen. Chosen by God. I do not know why. I'm his choice. Do you? Not because of you, but because of his great love. He goes on, he says, you're holy, meaning you're set apart to God. You are beloved, which means you are dearly loved. It's not, he doesn't just say you're loved by God. He says you are dearly loved by God. That's amazing to me. And therefore, we now have this privilege to live that way towards each other. May we treat each other like we're dearly loved. May we treat each other like we are gods. And we are brothers and sisters in Christ. Paul even goes on and he says, and if you have a complaint against somebody else, have you ever had a complaint against somebody else in the church? Raise your hand. It doesn't have to be this church. Meet any church. You have a complaint against anybody? Come on. You're lying if you haven't raised your hand. And what does Paul do? Does he say, show them how wrong they are and, 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 and backbite? That's not what he says. And if anybody has a complaint, forgive them. Why? because of the great forgiveness that God has given to us in Christ. Now we move on into verse 14, and Paul says, and above all these, put on love. Love binds everything in perfect harmony. Love binds everything together. All of these actions. You know what? I actually believe you can do all of these actions, probably can do all of these actions without love, without love for God and without love for other people. I mean, I'm certain you can do these things because I've done that before. I've done these things without love. Well, I'm going to do this, and I'm going to show them just how much I love them, and I'm going to serve them, and nobody's even acknowledging me right now. This is ridiculous, and I'm going to do this, and I'm going to do this. So there. You can see it over time when someone's doing something without love. You can know it. We can act that way within the church. I don't really want to do that. But you know what Paul says? It doesn't really matter if you want to do that thing. Because if you love God and if you love others, you don't have to like the thing you're doing because your love for God and love for others is fueling you in doing the thing you don't even like to do. And doesn't that show love? Right? That we would care for one another in our actions. And that reveals that there's a greater love in our hearts, the love of God. Jesus himself the scriptures say he endured the cross, despising the shame, but for the joy set before him, went through it. 
So we get to verse 17, which I think sums up all of these things nicely. It says, whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So Paul's list in verses 12 through 14 is not extensive. And therefore, in verse 17, he just says, and, and you know what? In anything you do, in, in everything, in, in your words and in your actions, do all in Jesus' name. Meaning... Do everything on the basis of Jesus. Do everything on the basis of Jesus and for the glory of Jesus. Why do we do that? Because Jesus is our life. If Jesus is my life, then everybody should see he's my life. And I should want to make Jesus known because he's my life. You ought to want to make Jesus known because he's your life. The reality is, the reality of the scriptures that what it teaches is that what you love is revealed in how you live. There's a lot of things that I enjoy. I even enjoyed using my watch as an illustration a little bit ago. If you know me, you know why. There's a lot of things I enjoy, and you know things that I enjoy, but it all pales in the face of Jesus Christ. What I want you to know more than anything else is that Jesus is infinitely more glorious than any other thing that I enjoy in this life. Jesus gives meaning to all the things that I experience in this life. And therefore, Paul says here in this text that we are to do everything in the name of Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. That in everything we do, it's for the fame of Jesus, and it's really only for the fame of Jesus if gratitude is alongside of it. You are not glorying in Jesus if gratitude is not with you. So worldly gratitude says, be grateful. And we say, to who? Godly gratitude directs the gratitude to God does this, seeks to do this in everything. I, I, I don't know. I hope I don't forget the conversation that I had with Lorraine Palmer back, I think, in May or June. And she was reminding me once again of her favorite Bible verse. As for God, his ways are perfect. And in case you don't know this, that verse came to her in the midst of her own season of suffering when her husband died in his mid-40s and she was left with her children. As for God, his ways are perfect. As for God, his ways are perfect. As for God, his ways are perfect. And it led her to, to praise God in the midst of all of these difficulties. But she told me something different. And this, this last time when I talked to her, she added something to the story. She said, you know, sometimes when I've experienced things that I really like. Sometimes I felt guilty because I think, oh, I don't deserve that. I shouldn't have that. That's too kind. And then she said, I remember that verse, as for God, his ways are perfect. And then I think, well, God must have thought I needed this too. In the painful providence and in the preferred providence, give thanks in everything. Thank him always. 
His ways are perfect, and we can trust that his ways are perfect because he sent Jesus to this earth to give us eternal life. Can we trust God? Even our gratitude is an act of trust. So gratitude is to be a constant characteristic for us individually, yes, but for us as a church because we're proclaiming we have been saved by God. And it should look different in this community of believers than in the world. Godly gratitude also should pervade the local church in our interpersonal relationships. Now look at verse 15. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body and be thankful. Now I know the previous verses emphasize interpersonal relationships. You can't bear with one another without another's to bear with. But I think verse 15 um, stands out in a special way. If you look at verses 12 through 17, Paul consistently uses the word and, 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 and. And he's, he's building up on what it means to be a community united in Jesus. And then he says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. This is, again, a communal command, but the only way that we can live this out is if we as individuals also recognize this. So you can say, what does it mean? What does it mean to let the peace of Christ rule in our hearts. Kind of an interesting phrase. Now in our culture, in our day, words like peace are more emotional terms. And so I can imagine some people reading this verse, and essentially if they were to translate this verse, it would probably be something like, let the warm fuzzies of Jesus rule your hearts. Like, you know, I'm not feeling peace right now. I'm supposed to let that peace rule in me. So, oh, peace, come. Peace, feelings, come. Oh, I feel peace now. That's Jesus' peace. You know, you can feel peace and not be at peace. Did you know that? that that's not the idea of these, this word here. This word for peace is a wartime term. And it's talking about being at peace Jesus gave us peace with God. You, who was once an enemy of God, you warred against him. You suppressed the truth about God and embraced a lie. But now, because of Jesus, he took the punishment your sins deserve, and you are at peace with God, and there's not one drop of wrath left for you. You are not only at peace with God, but you are friends with God, and you are children of God. Let the peace of God rule in your heart, or the peace of Christ rule in your heart, means that you are seeking to saturate your mind and your soul with the realities of who you are in Jesus. Let those realities rule you. The realities of what the gospel has purchased for you. And then Paul makes it explicitly communal when he says, in which indeed you were called in one body. You were called to be at peace with God individually, and we together are called to be at peace with each other in Christ. We are to live out that peace with one another. And living in a fallen world, and living in a world in which we still have sin, that can be really difficult. That's why Paul uses terms like bearing with one another and being long-suffering with one another because we still sin, and we can still sin against each other. But we know the scriptures also say love covers a multitude of sins. 
And Paul adds to this statement, and be thankful. And be thankful. By the way, Paul is not saying here, and just be thankful even though you don't like it. This word for thankful here, I mean, there's, there's a lot of times Paul uses the word thankful or words like that. And it's mentioned in each of these final verses in this text. But, but this, um, this specific Greek word for thankful in, in its uh, ordering is actually only found here, this variation of the word. is only found here in the New Testament and can be translated become thankful. What Paul is saying to them is you're, you're not perfect. None of us are perfect, right? But we are to grow in becoming more thankful people. Now, now, I do have one question with this. What does thankfulness have to do with how I treat other people? Because this is the context, how Paul is talking about how we treat other people and we're to be thankful. What does thankfulness and how we treat other people have to do with each other? One person put it this way, generally, a lack of peace results from self-seeking or dissatisfaction with the things as they are. Thankfulness points one to the realization that all things are provided in Christ. There is no room for ill will or bitterness if thankfulness prevails. What's he, what's he saying there? That, that if you're an ungrateful person, you're going to look at other people, maybe even in the church, and you're going to be like, oh, I wish I had that. I got, I, got a, I got a bad hand from God. You got the good one. I want what you have. Why can't I have this? What about this thing over here? Why, 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 why? But if you know that you have been blessed in Jesus Christ and all blessings are yours in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, then you are thankful. And instead of being envious and jealous of other people, you want those people to know the gratitude they ought to have in Jesus Christ. You see what Paul is doing here? And be thankful. Become thankful. Know what you've been given in Christ Jesus. And so then Paul moves on in verse 16 and shows us that godly gratitude ought to be expressed in teaching and singing. Verse 16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. How? How is the peace of God going to rule in my heart if I'm not meditating on the realities of Jesus and what he's done for me? How are we as a church going to allow the peace of Christ to rule in us if we're not meditating on these realities? The answer is we won't. Now, some people with verse 16 might jump immediately to singing. See, look, at there's a command to congregational singing, and that's true. There's a command for the church to sing together. You all sing together. But, but it's not just singing for singing's sake. The point of Paul here in this text is that we would have the word of Christ dwell richly in us. And singing is one way in which the word can dwell richly in us. That the gospel can sink deeply within. But the point is, let the word dwell richly. We should be people who know the gospel, savor the gospel, can recite the gospel. One of my favorite quotes from any preacher ever is preach the gospel to yourself. And this preacher also said, 
we spend far too much time listening to ourselves and not enough time preaching to ourselves. We need the gospel. We need the gospel. We need to preach it to ourselves daily, hourly. We, we need to be people who know what the gospel is and test it as we're in the word. Are you in the word? Are you meditating on the word? Do you memorize the scriptures? Do you have people in your life who exhort you, encourage you, challenge you, strengthen you in the word? Because Paul says, he doesn't just say, let the word of God be known. Don't just read the Bible so you can say, oh, I know the information. Read the Bible and meditate on the word and fellowship with believers so that you can walk away worshiping God more. That you walk away loving him more. As a result, then it makes sense why Paul moves to teaching. If we're filled with God, we're going to sing. We're going we're to sing to teach other people. We have let the word of God not just dwell in us, but dwell richly in us. Ventura. When we gather together as a church in small gatherings or large gatherings, I pray, I pray that you, I pray that we do so in order for the gospel to be made more known. I pray that above all, in all the decisions that we make, in all of our practices and how we treat one another, that we don't ever want the gospel to be eclipsed by anything else. But if the gospel dwells deeply, we sing. Now again, this isn't just singing by yourself. This is congregational singing, corporate, communal. We're declaring truths of grace about God. To sing in such a way that we're declaring there's no other, there's no greater one than our Savior. And Paul adds, we sing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. I know I've had this in my own life, and I actually wonder how many people think this way when they gather with a church family, and as they're maybe planning to gather with the church in that morning, or they're driving, they think in their mind something like, man, I really hope the songs are encouraging me today, or I hope they will encourage me today. Now, I hope the songs would encourage you too, but you know, that's really not the focus of Paul. That's not, that's not how Paul encourages us to think when we gather. How Paul encourages us to think is be filled with the word of God so that you can overflow to other people. So you know what my prayer ought to be? It ought to be, oh Lord, please take me and let me be an encouragement to other people as I sing. And you might even say, I don't feel like it. You know, this is confession time. This morning when I woke up, I did not want to preach. I did not want to come here this morning. That's a problem. It'd be really weird not having the preacher here. But you know what I said as I was laying in bed? God, I don't want to preach today. Help me. That's it. Help me. And I came, and I practiced, and I preached to the first service. And God has given me energy for this service, and I'm so grateful. Maybe for you, 
It's in the midst of the chaotic car ride. All right, kids, we're all praying now. Lord, help us. Help us today. Maybe if you're just sitting in the chair before the beginning and the start of our time together and you just pray, Lord, fill me so I might be able to minister grace to others around me. But when we gather together, we are to gather in such a way that gratitude comes out of us and encourages one another. Gratitude. I, I, again, even as I talk about how we can serve and do things without love, I think many people can sing without gratitude. And sometimes it's pretty obvious, isn't it? I think my dad has said before something like, um, if you're, I can't remember how it goes exactly, but something like, if you're worshiping God, if you're singing praise to God, tell it to your face. <laughs> tell it to your face. You know, if you really rejoice in God, let it be known and let it be known to others with thankfulness in your heart to God. And therefore, even the psalmist will say, he put a new song in my heart. Many will see it and fear. He doesn't say many will hear it. He says many will see. Gratitude. Gratitude. We pursue Jesus together with gratitude. We want to grow in our gratitude and become grateful people together. We want to sing in such a way that the gratitude comes out. But all of this is in dependence on God. But it is in line with the reality of who we are in Jesus Christ. Set your mind on things above. Your life is hid with Christ in God. That is a reality, whether you feel it or not. So fill your mind with the realities of being at peace with God and minister to one another those realities as well. So some questions for you. How are you expressing the peace of Christ with other members? Other members, even maybe members with whom you disagree. And there's a lot of things, it seems like, that we can disagree about, especially in this time period, right? How are you expressing the peace with them? Do you rejoice and sing with one another and long for each other to know Jesus more? Do you rejoice in the God who is patient with you and patient with every person for whom Christ died? Do you want to make it known that Jesus is our life? That we all are going to be in eternity together with the Lord? Gratitude. Gratitude expresses these things. In all of this, who are we thankful for and why are we thankful? I pray that we together are thankful to God for all that he is in Christ for us, and I pray that we are thankful to him for all the gifts he gives because his intentions is that we know more of his eternal glory. May we be a church full of godly gratitude in our interpersonal relationships, teaching, and in our corporate singing. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we thank you. We thank you for who you are, the sovereign God. Nothing happens without your say, without your power. Everything is held into being 
because you hold it there by the word of your power. You dwell in the heavens and you do whatever you please. And then we also hear that it pleased the Lord to crush Jesus. How could it please you to save sinners? And yet it does. Lord, thank you. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for setting us free. Thank you for giving us eternal life. Thank you that we can know our security and hope is in you, no matter what turbulence we're experiencing in our days here. Father, I pray that we would be a church family who communicates the peace and unity and grace found in Jesus Christ, that we would spur each other on to love and good works on the basis of our Savior, that in all the difficulties even of unity, that in our bearing all things, in our long-suffering, we would rejoice that we can share in the type of love even that you have for us that bears with us. Oh, Lord, be exalted. Do what only you can do in our midst. And I do pray that the world might be able to look on to Ventura and say, these people are different. Not just different for different sake, but we're different because we truly, we truly have been saved. And that you have filled us with hearts of gratitude. And so it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Amen.